Welcome to Goodfellow Podcasts. This episode is kindly supported by the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners. I'm Dr. Louise Kugler, a general practitioner, and today I have the pleasure of talking to Dr. Stephen Kara about concussion management in children. Stephen is a fellow of the Royal New Zealand College of General Practitioners and also has postgraduate training in sports medicine. He is in his ninth season as a team doctor for the Blues rugby team. He also works at Access Sports Medicine Clinic in Auckland, focusing on the assessment and management of community-based concussion. Welcome, Stephen. Thanks, Louise. So we're talking about concussion in a child. How would we define this? So the, I guess the medical uh, uh, definition is a transient disturbance of neurological function, really. So um, if we pick that apart, for me, transient means that the the symptoms uh, have a defined sort of period. They may last hours, they might last a few days, they might last a few weeks or, or, or even longer than that. And neurological function, so it's the way in which the brain works. So. Um, a lot of patients uh, say uh, say to me, you know, we need a, a scan here uh, to to help in in my assessment, or, or you know, to help uh, diagnose my concussion. Well, this is probably an area where our clinical tools are our ears uh, to uh, to assist us making the diagnosis, not the not the investigations. So what are the signs and symptoms that would make us think of a concussion in a child? The, the symptoms can be varied and, and they can go from anything from a disturbance of uh, cognitive function to some physical changes such as headaches and photosensitivity and phonophobia, emotional changes, behavioural changes in your kids, uh, fatigue and tiredness is extremely common, sleep disturbances, etc. So there's quite a lot of, 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 uh, of symptoms if we, if we think of them. Often to tell parents the simple thing is, does your child look right? Um, and that's simple, that's easy enough. Uh, you know, if they don't look right, then there's something going on. Now, they might not know what that is. It may be from a fever or some other occult infection or et cetera. But similarly, it could be from a head injury as well, if, that, if there's a mechanism which would fit with that. And uh, so uh, in the general community, for me, is if your child has sustained a blow or a mechanism which could be suspicious for a head injury and they do not look right, then there's something going on. And for me, that's enough. What would the red flags be um, when dealing with concussion, Stephen? And what would these red flags be and what would require an immediate referral to hospital? Um, the ACC HeadSmart guidelines are very, very good and, and I'd encourage most people to, to download those and have a look. And they have some lovely little cards, which, which are pocket cards, which actually outline these very, very well in terms of the red flags. So someone who has uh, obviously neck pain, increasing confusion, uh, repeated vomiting, which is always an interesting one because um, how much is repeated? Uh, and for me, for an adult, one vomit is, is enough. For a child, it's no vomits. Okay, uh, Those are people that I would be getting seen. Uh, obviously, if they have a seizure, if they have diplopia, uh, if they have any neurological signs or symptoms, um, if they have an increasing headache or deteriorating uh, level of, con- of, of uh, consciousness, then those people, I think, uh, need to be made what I call someone else's problem. Make them someone else's problem in the initial period and get them seen and, uh, and monitored in, in a hospital setting. Um, 
And most of those people, uh, most of those children are going to get better uh, with just over that period of observation of four or six hours or uh, however long they're going to be in the emergency department. But we really are just looking for those who may have some uh, intracranial structural pathology. So what children should be removed from play for how long? And should a child who's been removed from play on a day ever go back on the field or court? or to that activity? So, so with the last part, no. No one should ever go back on. If there's enough for you to remove the child from playing, then they stay off the, the pitch, the, the, the paddock, the field, the court, uh, until they are reassessed by someone who may be more knowledgeable in, in, uh, from a medical perspective in terms of concussion. The kids that need to be removed, uh, again, if we keep it simple, it is those children who you think something has happened to and they don't look right. Well, those kids need to remember the diagnosis and uh, again, refer it on and make it, someone else make the diagnosis. For me, it's all just a game. It's a game of whatever, um, netball, football, rugby. And uh, at a child, a child at their age needs their brain for an education and um, for, uh, you know, finishing their schooling and getting a job or whatever they, their long-term career may be, not, to uh, not to play a game that's mostly recreational. So, so um, you know anyone who you suspect is not right uh, needs to be removed. Anyone who's had a suspicious mechanism, a good enough blow that you think I'm not quite sure here, not quite sure is good enough for me to, to remove them. And then there's the obvious ones, right? A child for me who lays on the ground and is immobile for for a period of a few five ten seconds, something's happened. To them and they need to be removed. A child who gets up and starts wandering the wrong way or starts to be ataxic, um, complains of a headache, uh, has any visual disturbances, any change in sort of neurological function, brain function for me, um, they need to be removed as well. And then we go through the you know periods of observation on the sidelines and if I am the general practitioner or the person happens to be on the side with some medical experience then um, you know looking up for red flags suggesting they go to the hospital that way or ensuring they've got a pretty good set of instructions for so that people know what to watch out for. So we're the medical professional and this child's come off and now we have to assist them in our rooms. What tools and what assessment things should we be doing with these people? So we use uh, SCAT-5. It, uh, it used to be SCAT-3. We've now moved to SCAT-5 with the uh, um, the Berlin consensus last year in October 2017, wasn't it? Um, so we use the SCAT-5, and it's a very simple tool. It's easy to follow. The instructions are on the tool themselves. It's uh, it's downloadable free as a PDF, uh, and any internet Google search will, will bring it up. Um, and there is a version for adults, and there is a version for children. So the children's ones used for under 13s. And it is based on a series of symptoms reported from both the child and the parent. And, uh, and then some testing of neurocognitive function, some balance type testing, some coordination type testing, and matching that against some normative data. Because often in these kids, we don't have a baseline. So normal for me is uh, generally a score of less than five uh, is generally normal for both symptoms and severities on the symptomatology side. And a score uh, generally around about 24, maybe 25 on the, on the neurocognitive testing is, is deemed to be normal. 
Um, so as a general practitioner, I would be using those tools to, to guide my uh, history, history taking first and then that would form part of my clinical examination from a symptomatic point of view and from a, um, what I'm doing from a, from a clinical point of view as well. So while we have the SCAP5 tool, um, it is something for me that probably doesn't change a lot with, uh, with duration of, of post-injury. Um, so we don't use that repeatedly. SCAP5 is something that I would do uh, when first seeing the child. Um, we repeat it again at discharge, but that's more for data collection purposes than driving any decision-making process. Um, and it's actually symptomatology. Uh, that drives a lot of our decision-making processes and and um, looks at recovery from our point of view. Um, so GPs would be, I'd be saying to them, look, you yeah, use the scout fires, but I don't think you need to do it every time the child comes back in, but I would be using the symptom scores each time they report. So the symptom scores are based uh, on a series of symptoms, 20 for the under 13s of the child ones. And so we, we look at the number of, uh, the total number of symptoms. So the symptom score, that might be six, seven, eight, or whatever, 20. And then they get to grade that on a scale of one to six, one being minus six being severe, and uh, so the, the, the total of that is called the symptom severity score. We use both of those to then look at how the child is progressing. Now, if often with their progression to become asymptomatic, those scores will reduce. The, the children who have really high symptom scores when we come in, and when I'm saying really high, I'm talking sort of 40 or 50 on the severity scale, uh, are ones that I'd be a little bit more concerned of and, and know that they might take a little bit longer. There's no published data about that. We just know that increasing an inc a higher symptom severity score or a high total symptom score uh, does affect prognosis. So maybe those ones I would also be sending off a little bit earlier for, for some advice and some assistance. So there's a catchphrase, rest, recover and return in concussion management. Can we firstly talk about rest? So rest used to be rest is best, and that uh, that has changed with uh, with research. Um, a lot of that research coming out of Buffalo um, from a group by, led by John uh, Liddy and Barry Willer, and they produced a series of uh, studies which show that actually exercise is a very useful tool. So rest for the first twenty four to forty eight hours, most definitely. Uh, and that's just managing symptoms, paracetamol for headaches, etc. And then uh, um, allowing them to, to graduate into some light activity after that. Along with the rest period becomes the use of electronic devices and uh, is a rest period from that too, all right, because we've said that concussions are a disturbance in brain function. And so when your children are on electronic devices of various sorts in the world that they live in nowadays, of course, what are they using? Well, they're using their brain. And so we want that period of rest. Uh, so I exclude those electronic devices. I allow a little bit of TV because that's a much more passive type uh, modality, and but I'd limit that to kind of a a series of, uh, sorry, not a series, an episode of something. I did say a series once before and got in trouble because that's a lot of series, lots of episodes, but an episode of something uh, and a movie is, is, you've got to break that up. You're allowed to watch half of it and then come back to it. So the initial first 24, 48 hours of period of rest. So then we move on and talk about recovery. So recovery nowadays is based around doing things. 
right? Uh, like I said, doing nothing is, is, is not right after the first four, 24, 48 hours. Um, so it's a period of light aerobic activity and uh, light aerobic activity is walking. Uh, so bonding with your child, going out for some walks, taking the family dog for a walk, uh, light chores, household chores are okay. Uh, I tell the kids they can clean the room, that's okay. Uh, they can do dishes. Um, they're allowed to get out in the garden and help mum or dad with some light gardening. Um, so they've got to be doing, doing some things. Um, with that comes some relative mental rest, which means again starting to get back into some some studies and some uh, some schoolwork, but it's in a graduated way, and we only use electronics for an educational purpose. So those electronics don't come back until we're fully back integrated into school. Reality is that um, uh, you know kids are active, and that's that's difficult, and so I balance that with saying, look, if your child is outside and they normally active they want to kick a ball against the fence then that's a-okay if they want to jump on the trampoline that that's not okay all right so you've got to base, base judge that a little bit around the reality of, of looking after a child i have a very simple scale that i use because people say to me well, how do you know if they're doing too much and i i don't know it's it's uh it's in the popular literature draw but it's uh, it's what i call the u-shaped curve and the u-shaped curve to me says that on one side of the U is if you do nothing, uh, your symptoms may not get worse, but it will take you longer to recover. The other side of the U-shaped curve says, well, if you do too much, then you're going to get your symptoms back, you're going to feel worse, and it's going to take you longer to recover. So I like them to operate at the bottom of the U-shaped curve, which I call the kind of the sweet spot, really. And so I explained to parents that I think that's a good thing, and from a physical and a cognitive perspective that we operate there, uh, and how do you know if you're operating there? Well, I get the um, uh, children to, to rate themselves out of 10. So 10 is the worst thing you've ever felt, and zero is their superman or superwoman. Uh, and then if you are operating, continuing to operate at the bottom of the U-shaped curve, then basically uh, your symptoms won't increase by a factor of plus three. And if they do increase by a factor of plus three, it tells me we're starting to operate on the side of the U-shaped curve where they're doing a little bit too much. So that's a useful way of just allowing parents to monitor uh, and gives them a bit of a scale as to how to monitor what the recovery part looks like from a physical and a cognitive sort of loading perspective. And what about the return? Yes, so number one, most of the people we see are sports-related injuries. Uh, You can't return to the sporting field till you're back at school because your child needs their brain to get an education. So that's the far more important thing. So from return to school perspective, um, if the child, I do, if they, if they are markedly symptomatic, I do give them a period of time at home, but um, there has to be schoolwork sent home. And again, using that U-shaped curve analogy, I want them to do some schoolwork at home. Uh, and it may just be 10 or 15 minutes uh, periods and then taking a, a recovery, a break, and working away for 10 or 15 minutes, but I'd like them to do some schoolwork home and gradually increase that based on symptomatology or lack of symptomatology. Um, Once they can cope with doing schoolwork at home, then we graduate them back into school. That may be half days for the first few days, and coping with that, then back into school full-time. 
um, and always looking to make um, the, looking to ensure that we're not increasing the symptoms because that's our that's our key there. Once they're back into school full time, then they're allowed to get back into some training, some sport specific training for whatever their sport may be, whether that be football or rugby. Uh, and then if they cope with that and uh, remain symptom free, remain in class and doing well, then we look at them getting back into their sports after that. Some sports have some um, pretty good guidelines around that. So for uh, for rugby and for rugby league, there is a 23-day stand-down period as a minimum for anyone under the age of 18 or 18 years and younger. Um, that doesn't mean they go back at 23 days. It means if they're symptom-free and they've progressed through a gradual return to play protocol, then they're okay to go back at, uh, at day 23. If they're still not, you know, if they're not symptom free or they're still suffering from symptoms not back into school, then again, that's just a, that's a minimum. It doesn't have to be right there. And there. You've mentioned um, returning to work and school. How often should we be assessing these children in general practice? And at what point should we refer them if we're not happy with how things are going? Yep. So um, obviously you'll see them initially and um, I think that if you gave them some good advice around you know, the initial um, uh, management like we've talked about around the recovery strategies and then probably reviewing them uh, at around sort of day f- 14, day maybe 10, maybe day 10 to 14 post-injury. Right? Certainly the studies uh, overseas tell us that adults, 70% of people will recover uh, by two weeks whereas children is more four weeks for 70% recovery. So they too take a little bit longer. And often telling people, parents that gives them a time frame that so they can actually my, my child is still within the normal range. I think if they're not improving by two weeks, uh, then sending them off to someone else who is interested in a concussion uh, is a good thing nowadays because we would now institute much more active management. So uh, we treadmill test these children and we actually put them on a formal exercise program. And there's very good studies again coming out from Buffalo that show that um, early active management via an exercise point of view improves recovery and it does not increase their symptoms down the track. So some of the studies now, they are actively engaging children in treadmill-based testing within the first week of injury and showing that they actually do do no harm at all. The other symptoms that we uh, we look for, and I think um, general practitioners should be aware of, is uh, a child presenting with maybe more vestibular dominance symptoms. So those Children are going to present with a lot of balance disturbance, um, dizziness, and try to define dizziness being, you know, do they just mean like they're lightheaded as if they feel like they're going to faint, or if it feels a little bit unsteady like the room's moving in. Uh, and, and actually, if you ask that, kids are pretty good at telling you which one that is. And I think those um, children with vestibular dominant symptoms probably should be sent off earlier because they probably have some vestibular dysfunction associated with the concussion and they need to be managed earlier for that um, uh, because we do know that as a prognostic indicator, vestibular symptoms are one of those ones that can delay recovery. And then those children with neck 
dominant symptoms or a lot of neck pain and a simple examination just looking at range of movement of some of a child's neck um, will detect that and they should have some form of um, manual therapy whatever that may look like um, to allow the, the neck to become sort of pain free as well so we split them up into those with sort of physiological uh, symptoms of concussion um, being both cognitive and um, the physical things like headache Photophobia, photosensitivity versus vestibular-based dominance versus cervical-based. Perfect. That's great points. Thank you. So just to conclude today, what would your take-home messages be for our listeners? Um, Take-home messages. Uh, If you think it, then it possibly is. And so as a medical practitioner or as a parent uh, on the sideline, um, remove your, your child from that game and get them assessed. The worst thing you've done is got them to miss one game or half of a game or however long they've been out for. If you take them off, they don't come back. There are a lot of um, uh, apps available. There are a lot of uh, pocket um, cards, which you've seen used probably in professional sport, um, and they're to be used only in professional sport. Any other sideline testing is, is not to be used in an amateur environment, um, and I certainly would not be using those to Uh, get my child back onto the field for that game. Um, There are different different codes have different um, return to play, so if you're not sure about those, um, know, try and where to access them. New Zealand Rugby Union, New Zealand Rugby League uh, have their guidelines on their websites. Uh, New Zealand Football has a slightly different guideline, but it is also available on on their website as well. No matter what guideline you're using, the simple things are ensuring the child is asymptomatic first, ensuring they're back into school because uh, that's a priority before we then get them back into their recreational activities um, and returning them to, to, to playing whatever code they are playing. Um, if you have a, uh, a child who you think is not improving, then refer them early because the studies do show us that early active intervention actually helps prognosis. If they are someone who's got vestibular dominant symptoms, again refer them early because with vestibular rehabilitation then these people can be made um, uh, better a lot lot quicker. Um, And uh, I'm sure the practitioners like myself who are more than happy to, you know, Take phone calls and, and uh, offer advice if, if, if you find that there's a, someone that you are uh, battling away with. Because it's, it's difficult. And general practice is a very busy occupation. Uh, you have limited time in which to do, to make the diagnosis you do. Uh, and that can be anything from a fever to a broken toe to you know anything in between. So, uh, you know, more than happy to, to, to see these people if, if you find it just, you know, from a time perspective that's, that's difficult to do or you need some, need some more advice. Thank you, Stephen. It's been a pleasure talking to you today. If you're a New Zealand GP and would like to claim CPD points for listening to this podcast, please fill in the Reflection of Learning form found at goodfellowunit.org. Thank you for listening.